Last week, uh, we saw Boaz do what he had said, which was do whatever it took to become the Redeemer. And that's why we're picking it up. And this is Ruth 4, 13 through the end, 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadab. Amimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicky. Good job with the names. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, the summer stretches before us, and as it does, we uh, finish our series in the book of Ruth. I think it's been a timely, timely place for us to be over the last few weeks. We look forward, just so you know what's coming. Over the summer, we're going to be looking at uh, the Apostles' Creed, which we do um, say together on a, a monthly basis when we do communion with one another. So we'll be kind of taking a more theological approach to really getting at some of the central concepts of the Christian faith throughout the summer and then starting in, in the fall. And I feel the weight of it already. We're going, to, uh, we're going to slowly make a trek through the book of Romans, which is kind of a once in a, uh, a, once in a career thing for a pastor. So um, I'm, looking forward. I'm looking forward to being back. Uh, with you uh, at, at the end of my sabbatical in September, and we will jump right into that book together. Uh, but, the, you know, this summer takes some time to rest, but not too much time, uh, because we have a lot of work we want to get done, and we believe God's calling us to do a great work here in the city, and we need to prepare ourselves in the summer's part of that preparation. But this morning, as we, as we finish this, this, uh, this wonderful book of Ruth, we've entitled this sermon series, Crazy Love in a Crazy World. And the reason is because the lesson of the book goes something like this, I think, if I had to sum it up for you. And that's what I want to do today. Again, we're going to touch on some big picture. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty details. I'm not going to try to exegete the genealogy there at the end of the book. It, there's a theological reason it's there. We'll talk about that. But, but kind of some more big picture ideas about this, this book. And if I had to sum up the lesson of the book, it would be something like this. That when the big stuff seems to be spinning out of control, which it was in this time, and which it is in many ways in our, in our time as well. But when the big stuff seems to be spinning out of control, what you should do is you should focus on the small stuff of life. You should put all of your attention and energy into loving your wife and kids and caring for aging parents and getting to know your neighbors and volunteering at the public school and all of these sorts of things because life is full of small moments. But what we learn in this book is that every small moment has enormous eternal impact. Small stuff becomes big stuff given enough time. You change the world, in fact, through the small things in simple acts of kindness in being available to listen when nobody else is to someone who's hurting. 
whatever the case might be. God is always working through small things to accomplish his purpose in the world. And so the kingdom of God, we said at the very beginning, we'll say here again at the end, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven comes through ordinary people living small lives filled with normal, everyday tasks who display an extraordinary love. And what even Martin Luther and other reformed, you know, reformer theologians believed was that every mundane task is actually a sacred moment. When you fold the laundry and when you cook dinner for an ungrateful family, you are contributing to the unfolding of God's redemptive plan for the world. That God accomplishes more in those little small mundane things in our lives than we actually have eyes to see. We typically don't think of them as of carrying much weight, but in fact they do. I love this summary from one of the commentaries that I've been reading uh, and that I read this week in preparation for this text. Listen to what this, this, this commenter has to say. He says, so much of what we've seen in Ruth is mundane. Harvesting, land inheritance, care for widows, and so forth. The book of Ruth does not feature any miracles whether suspensions of natural law or angelic appearances to humans. There are no references to public worship or priestly ministration. No prophet thunders against the sins of God's people, calls for repentance, threatens exile, or promises restoration. Except for mentioning the judges at the beginning and King David at the end, the book has a small town off the beaten path feel. The characters were not, even, not the movers and shakers of the ancient Near East. The events narrated would not have even made the front page of the newspaper. What happens in this book, he goes on to say, does not seem at first glance to constitute a decisive eruption or breaking in of God into history. And yet, this book does not tell a secular tale. In Ruth 14, 4, 13 through 21, which is our text for today, it contains some stunning big picture information that puts the events squarely into the middle of God's plan of redemption. Here's what he says. Ordinary lives become the scene of extraordinary turns of events. Francis Schaeffer is famous for saying that with God there are no little people and there are no little places. And that is surely the main part of the lesson of the book of Ruth. As Schaeffer wrote, he said, we all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. Ruth is meant to be the end of all that thinking. Do you seek great things for yourself, the Bible says, and then it answers the question, seek them not. To use Schaeffer's words again, in God's sight there are no little people. Or big people. There are only consecrated people in God's place for them at each moment. And that means living the life that's right in front of you. Loving and being ignored. Acting heroically and being villainized for it. But it is to that very thing that all who take the name of Jesus to themselves are called. Christianity is so hard because it is so small. Ruth also teaches us an important lesson about how you find the courage to keep going when this small, unnoticed work of love gets hard. And surely, surely it will. Amen? You with me? Surely work gets hard because truer words have never been spoken than God is great, beer is good. Finish it. We are Polk County. Don't act like you don't know that song. People are crazy. Don't amen that too loud. You'll offend somebody. And last week I used the analogy of tubing down the river in North Georgia with my family. 
And uh, the hymn, the hymn that we sang just a, just a little while ago coming to mind, and the, the line particularly, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. And so two things. The first is that it's important to know that, and this is the, what the book teaches, it's important to know that you're being steered through life by God's love. That his love and his plan of redemption is like a current, gently and sometimes not so gently, pushing you along from one thing to the next, which means if your faith is in Jesus Christ, listen, if your faith is in Jesus, whatever circumstances you're facing, whatever you found yourself waking up into today, you can say, I'm here because God loves me. His love has led me to this place. Do you see how it takes the pressure off? At least it should. But um, I like to, to take a paddle with me when I'm on the river. Because I don't like to feel out of control of where I'm going. My father-in-law, Ashley's dad, is just the opposite. He, he, he went with us a couple years ago. He likes to just sit back. And if, if you know him, some of you do. This won't surprise you. He just likes to sit back and enjoy the ride. Now, I usually make it down ahead of him. But I'm typically sopping wet and scraped up because I've gotten to all the places that I shouldn't have gotten myself into to begin with. He seems to be able to avoid all the mess that I get myself into by just letting the river take him wherever he wants to go. And it's a parable for life going down the river with Ampa for me. And I really, I'm really trying to learn to be much more like him. But we've talked about the providence of God. And what the providence of God is, is it means that God is the master weaver who takes the threads of our lives as, dis, as tangled and discordant as they might appear to us at times. And he's arranging them to make something beautiful for his glory and for our joy, our ultimate joy. And so we've said God is always doing a thousand things and we may be aware of one or two of them. But the second thing that the line reminds us is important is that in order to kind of rest in knowing that there's a current that's, that's driving you along, you really need to know where the current's taking you, don't you? Because if God's love is like a current, it's pushing you along, it's leading you onward, leading you homeward, the, the song says. Now, what if you're on the river and you're being swept away, but you know that down the river a ways is a 200-foot waterfall, and at the bottom of the waterfall are, is, are jagged rocks? Then the current is not a comfort. It's a threat. It's a danger. And so you got to know where you're going. And it's why the song picks it up. Where he, it's, his love is a current leading us where? Leading us onward, but leading us homeward to our glorious rest above. So the, the, te- the, the song even, even addresses that. But you gotta know, you got to know where you're, where you're going. And, and really, that's what I want to talk about this morning, is that the power of love today comes from the promise of tomorrow. That love and hope are connected. We've said this over and over again as we've... We've gone throughout, you know, the teachings in the last few months. Love and hope. And hope, if I could define it for you in just a little different way than we've done before, hope is certainty in a good future. That's really what the scripture means by hope. It's certainty in a good future. That even if it's hard right now, hope is knowing that the right now that is so hard is not the end of the story. Because God is not done yet. He is a redeemer. He brings life out of death. Quite literally. 
And this is probably the greatest gift the book of Ruth gives to us. That, and that's why I wanted to end our time together in the book talking about it. And so what you see in the outline that I've given you, and what we're going to kind of highlight this morning is, there really are two different perspectives for looking at life that are being laid side by side with one another here. The first one comes from really, the, the book of Ruth is a companion volume to the book of Judges. And so in the book of Judges, there's a particular view of life. There's a perspective on life that kind of arises out of that book. And it's to really see life as just going around and around but not really ever getting anywhere. You're just kind of on this journey around and around, and you're not making any progress. But, but Ruth comes alongside of that book of Judges and contrasts that, and in Ruth we're told that there's another perspective on life, and that perspective is to see life as a journey through death towards resurrection. And so the perspective you choose will have huge impact on the way you live, and that's, that's the message. Whichever of those perspectives really kind of comes to the center of your life is going to determine greatly what your life looks like. So let's look at each of those together, and then I have two gospel truths at the end that I just want to hammer home to your heart uh, that you can hopefully just uh, uh, live the summer with as you go along this summer. First, let's look first at the perspective that life is just going around and around and around, that life is a cycle, not a journey, that we are trapped in an ever-repeating pattern with nothing new ever happening and no happy ending waiting for us down the road. This is really what comes through in the book of Judges, which I've told you is a companion uh, volume to Ruth because the two provide this distinct contrast. So remember, we're told in verse 1, chapter 1, that, that all of these things that take place in Ruth happened in the days when the judges ruled. And the author of the material makes his theological point there in the book of Judges by using a very powerful literary device. Uh, there's a cyclical pattern, if you've read the book, and we've even studied this before as a church, but there's a cyclical pattern that happens throughout the book of Judges. The people sin, God judges them, he brings judgment because of their sin, they get really sorry because it gets really hard for them, and they cry out for mercy, and they and repentance, question mark. Uh, God feels sorry for them, he sends a deliverer, a judge, a powerful military political leader who rescues them from the hands of their enemies, Things go along okay for a little while, but then eventually they go right back to the sins that got them in trouble to begin with, and the pattern starts to repeat itself, and it's over, and it's over, and it's over again. For 400 years, the same cycle. They go in and out of the same cycle over and over. The people sin, he delivers them, they're sorry, sort of, cry out, he sends a judge, and then within a few years they get right back into the trouble they began, and they're stuck. Now, the ancient peoples believed that this was the fundamental structure of all of life, that life really was a cycle of life and death going around and around, the circle of life, though not sung by Elton John and romanticized like it is in Lion King. It's awful, really. I mean, basically what that song is celebrating that you and I will go back to the dirt that we were made from and just rot. Let's sing the circle of life. You know, doesn't that sound, isn't that a word song worthy? No, not at all. The circle is the symbol for paganism. And ancient Greeks, for example, believe that, that we are trapped in this circle. Not a happy circle. Nothing new ever happens. It's, if it's good right now, if you're having a good day today, just wait. By 5 o'clock this afternoon, probably the gray clouds will come in. At least by tomorrow, it's going to turn bad any day now. You know, a serious Greek play always ended in tragedy because they believed that even in the best of times, suffering was waiting right around the corner haunting every celebration. Life is war and peace, and then war again and peace, and so on. It's gain, but then loss. It's happiness, followed right behind by sadness. It's joy, and then sorrow, and maybe some joy, over and over, around and around, going nowhere, gaining nothing. 
we could illustrate it with with uh, with the uh, follow the following chart that I think um, Josh is going to put up behind me. This this circle of life, going from life to death, back to life to death. This cyclical way of of thinking about about how life is lived, and it really is a fundamentally cynical way of imagining life. It's a cynical perspective on life. Life is what it is. There's no point trying to change anything because things don't change. Nothing's permanent. Nothing matters. We are trapped. Listen to this. This is a great description, and, and you can chuckle because you're going to feel yourself in this, but, but listen to this. We are trapped in a daily grind that cycles through dragging ourselves out of bed in the morning, going to work, watching the clock until quitting time, rushing home, either to the loneliness of an empty house or to the whining of children, eating dinner, watching TV, collapsing into bed, and then getting up to repeat the cycle the next day over and over and over again. Those are Paul Miller's words. I think he captures something there. It may not be exactly like that, but for many of us, life feels like that a lot of the time. And here's the problem. The close cousins of cynicism are hopelessness, bitterness, and weariness. And that was Naomi. I want to say it like, like Vicky says. It's so cool. Naomi. I can't get the accent down, though, Vicky. That is her, however you pronounce her name. When we first meet her in the book of Ruth, do you remember? They call her Naomi, which means sweet. She says, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Why? Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Everything's bitterness to me. She's become cynical. But man, it happens to me too. Has it ever happened to you? Do you ever get tired of going around and around and around with yourself and never making any progress? Do you, do you ever get bitter going around and around with other people and their sins and them doing the same thing that's aggravated you a thousand times before? Do you ever feel hopeless going around and around and around with life when it feels like nothing ever changes? See, that's, that's what happens to us as we get stuck. Well, we, we, know this isn't, we know this isn't the case, but we get stuck with this perspective that really comes out in the book of Judges. And that's why we need the book of Ruth so much. Because what the book of Ruth does in contrast to Judges is it suggests that life is really structured differently. That life is not a never-ending cycle of brokenness and despair, but rather it is a journey through death towards resurrection. That life is not a circle. It's a straight line curving upward. That we are, this is Paul Miller again, he says, we are not trapped in a cycle of despair, but we are on a journey of hope. And so we would illustrate it with another slide. Josh, if you'd put the J-curve slide up. The J-curve slide looking something like this. See, the ancient Hebrews didn't, didn't see life as a circle. They saw, as a, they saw it as a line turning upward out of death towards resurrection. They believed that God was moving history toward a final climax when he would make things right. That he was at work even when their lives were at the bottom of the curve there. They had faith that he would intervene. They believed that God was taking the world somewhere. Their scriptures taught them that he indeed was making beautiful things. I mean, the lines of, those, the, the, the lines of that song are so powerful. It's why I asked Ryan to sing it this morning. That, that we, life really can change. Right? This should, this should get you nodding here as I go through this, okay? Just so you know. That, that all that has been lost can and will be found. That a garden, that a garden can come up out of the ground. The Bible says even out of a desert ground, 
when God's power is at work. That hope is springing up everywhere. He makes beautiful things. Out of dust, it says. And that really is, that really is what is true of the God we serve. But it's true of what life feels like, what life is like when, when you live it with him. Now let's take a look at the big picture of the book of Ruth. Because the book of Ruth really is a gospel story. It is this, this J-curve story, a death and resurrection story. It becomes evident here at the end when you consider all of the reversals that have taken place. And I can illustrate it using a third chart. So if you go to the third one for me, Josh, there. I want you to see everything that's happened to the people in this story from the beginning to the end. You remember at the beginning of the story, uh, Naomi and her husband and their family are leaving. Uh, the story ends with a return from that desolate place back to the house of bread, to Bethlehem, their hometown, where God was again visiting his people and blessing them with the water that they needed. The drought's over, the harvest has come, there's bountiful provision for everyone. It, it, it ends, if you remember, or excuse me, the story be begins with the death of Elimelech and his two sons and the two women, the three women that are left, you know, widows. It ends with the promise of life and the birth of the child. It begins, and Naomi says, I, I left full, but I come, have come back empty. You remember that? Ruth's standing right beside her, and she says, I come back with nothing. But here at the end, her arms are full of the, one of the most precious things in life, a child. It begins with famine. It ends at the barley harvest with the abundance of the crop that has come in. It begins with Naomi and Ruth homeless and vulnerable. It ends with them resting in the care of the community it begins as i've said with with naomi saying don't call me pleasant call me mara because god has made all things bitter for me it ends with her calling with with her being called naomi yet again it begins in deep mourning it ends with great joy it begins with childlessness and the heartbreak of that it ends with the promise of a child, but not just a child, a child that would be in the line of the great king. It, in, it begins, excuse me, with, with the sense that, that, that God has brought his curse down upon this family. It ends with everybody, first the men at the city gate last week, and now the neighborhood women. Isn't that great? The neighborhood women show up. And all, and all everybody can do is just pronounce blessings over this family because they see how God is so powerfully provided for them. It ends, excuse me, I can't get it right. It begins with no king. There's no king in Israel. Judges ends. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and that was the problem. It ends with a very simple word, David. We are watching we, are watch, we have been watching for eight weeks God make beautiful things. We're watching resurrection happen here at the very end of Ruth in these, in these, in these verses. God is a, verse 15, a restorer of life. Now, it's, it, that's a reference to the child, and we're getting jumbled up here again. Where, where are we talking about? Remember, remember uh, in a, a, few, a few chapters ago, they were talking about the Redeemer, but is it Boaz the Redeemer, God the Redeemer? Who is the, who is the restorer of life? And that's the point. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference where, where God's work begins and a friend's work ends. And a lot of times those two things are really the same thing. But God is a restorer of life. With him, the tears we sow become a harvest of joy. 
Okay, as a people of faith, do you believe that? Are you, are you sure? That the tears we sow become a harvest of joy, that he redeems, he restores. I mean, think about the structure of the whole Bible. God made all things good. When humanity rebelled against him, all the good became bad, but immediately he initiated a plan to bring about the renewal of the world and to return the world to what it once was. The Bible begins in a garden in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It ends in a garden in Revelation chapter 22. And that makes a theological point. Ruth is a microcosm of the whole Bible. Think of all the imagery the Bible uses to capture our imagination regarding the restoration coming to the world from darkness to light, from lost to found, from sinner to saint, from empty to filled, from widow to bride, from orphan to beloved child, from barren womb to rejoicing mother. These are the promises God holds out to us as we venture through this life that is full of difficult, difficult days. And we seem to instinctively know that reality is structured this way. Because all of our favorite stories follow the same pattern. All of our favorite stories are gospel stories. Greek tragedies don't sell well. You know this, right, in America? I mean, they made a movie, Troy, years ago. Great movie. Awesome movie. And it had Eric Bana and Orlando Bloom in it. So every woman in America wanted to go see the movie. And yet, if you look, it was awesome. And it still flopped in theaters. Why? Why did it flop? Because it's a tragedy. And not a gospel story. And who wants to go see a movie where there's no happy ever after? I don't. You don't. Our hearts were made for gospel stories. That's why Disney's doing so well, by the way. They keep telling and retelling, and then they remake it. In 20 years, they'll remake it again for a new generation. They don't, we, they don't have to come up with anything new because they keep telling these gospel stories. Life is never what it seems. There's always some kind of magic at work in the world that carries with it the hope of a happily ever after that no evil queen, no matter how much power she might possess, can keep from coming about. That is, Dis that is making Disney billions. That right there. Billions of billions. And it's because something inside of, of us knows that's what life really is like. It doesn't feel like it all the time. There are really dark days, but the darkness is passing away. That's what the Bible says. We are hope-shaped creatures. What we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. And Ruth is a hope-shaped book. The hope of the book of Ruth can be summed up in one word. And, and really, I hate to be anticlimactic, but really, this one we could preach a whole sermon on just one, this one word. And it is the word there at the end, David. There are two endings here, notice. One that happens in verse 17, and then one that happens again down at the bottom of in verse 22. So we're told that the, that the name of uh, we're told that the name of Ruth's child is Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 17, and then there's the genealogy, beginning with Perez, who is the father of the Bethlehemites, and ending with again David. So David David's name is meant to linger as the curtain falls on the story, and it, and it's meant to convey something like this: better days are ahead. The king is coming. The king is on the way. The kingdom, the kingdom is almost here. And let me try to connect the dots for you and me as, as New Testament Christians. We, we read David in the Old Testament being New Testament people. And we're meant to think of David's greater son. Not only, not only the promise of David himself but the, and the, the Davidic dynasty, but the promise of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king. Acts 2, for example, Peter connects David, Jesus to David. 
And, and whenever the early preachers of, of Christianity do that, it's always, it's always they're trying to convey the promise of resurrection. So the word David here in our ears should sound like the word resurrection. It's the promise, the promise of resurrection. We, we read David and we think Jesus. We read David and we think what Jesus ultimately accomplished, that he rose from the dead on the third day. Because, of, of course, the work of Jesus for us was a journey, much like we've been saying. If you put that slide back up for me, uh, do you mind doing that, Josh, the J-curve slide? Jesus is... The journey of Jesus' life and ministry was a journey down into death on the cross as a substitute for sinners and then through death to resurrection on the third day. Philippians 2, which we read, is the master story of the gospel that Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He humbled himself out of the privileges and rights of godness and became nothing. He came down to earth, took on human flesh, and became a servant. The trajectory of his obedience was down, down, down towards death, self-sacrifice for others, and ultimately to the cross. And therefore... We are told God raised him up, brought him up out of the grave. He ascended back into heaven at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority over the universe, and has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? That's the movement. It's what theologians call the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And this means a couple things for us. And here I want to get practical right at the very end. It means just a couple of things for us. First, it means that God's love in Christ has broken open the top of the circle of despair and hopelessness. We are not trapped in a cycle of sin. We are not destined to just go round and around and around repeating the same mistakes of the generation before us or the same mistakes of our own past. Jesus has broken the power of sin and death in dying for us on the cross and being raised on the third day. His resurrection means there are no more circles. No more going around and around, going nowhere, gaining nothing. For God's people, if your faith is in him, if you're in Christ, life is a journey towards resurrection for you too. There are dark, dark valleys to pass through for sure. There will be times of bitterness and despair. There will be, I promise, days so painful you will wonder whether you'll make it to bedtime. But never, never even on those dark days without hope. No matter how faint. And never without the promise of resurrection lingering over your life. And, you know, so we, what does that do? What kind of life does that make possible? And there's a final epitaph of Ruth here at the end, verse 15, that I want you to just see before we, we move on. They, the, the neighborhood women, uh, again, just cracks me up. The neighborhood women come, and, and they start to sing and bless Naomi. And here's what they say of Ruth. They say, God has made her more than seven sons to you. That is awesome. I mean, that, that, would have been, that would have been unthinkable to these people. At the beginning, she's a foreigner. She's hardly worth mentioning. Naomi ignores her, you know, and she just quietly goes about the work of love. And here at the end, they say, she is better. I'd rather have her than seven sons. Holy cow. Because, because she is revered. We're still, 2,500 years later, we're talking about her. Because of her deep faith and courage and the love she'd shown to her mother-in-law. And that's, that's what hope does. That's what hope does. It makes you able to keep your head when all of those about you are losing theirs and wait and not be tired of waiting and meet with triumph or disaster and treat them both the same, to use a few of Kipling's lines. Your whole life will become an echo of Jesus' life. 
That's what will happen. That's what hope does. It, it creates the same, just leave that up there, Josh. It means that your life is going to begin to, to take the same shape that Jesus, your life for others, your life in the world, the same shape of Jesus' life for you. I was so struck uh, reading Colossians this week where Paul says, Colossians 1-4, I rejoice in my sufferings, listen to this, for your sake, and am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister for this. I toil struggling with, with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Oh, my, that just like landed on me because he's saying there's only, there's only one way to pastor. And it's in suffering and self-sacrifice for the sake of the church that is so profound, that is so profound that unless God continues to powerfully work energy within you, you'll flame out. And in Philippians 2, he says, have the mind of Christ among yourselves. And so it's not just for pastors, it's for all of us. We should expect our lives to take the shape of Jesus' death and resurrection. Ruth went into death for the sake of Naomi and experienced resurrection. And that is the shape of the life of faith. Michael Gorman calls it the narrative shape of the faithful community. That the cross of Jesus is a paradigmatic act of love that should be being replayed over and over again in the church all the time and spilling out of the church towards the world. We are to give ourselves to one another in radical love and self-denial, saying no to selfishness and yes to love as an imitation of God's love for us in Christ over and over again going down into death, not because we accidentally find ourselves there. No, actually intentionally choosing to go down into nothingness into sacrifice because we believe, no, we know that just as God raised up Christ from the dead, so when we follow him down into nothingness, he will raise us up too. It's our job to continue the story of Ruth, to continue the story of the cross in new times and new places. And it's another lesson from, this, from Ruth. Uh, and one of, the, one of the takeaway lessons is this, that people come to faith by being loved. Think about it. People come to faith by being loved. Paul said to the Colossians, I fill up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. That sounds almost heretical, doesn't it? But what does he mean? He means it's hard to know that God loves you until somebody else loves you. It's hard to know. It's hard for you to know God loves you until you experience his love and the love of a friend, a parent, a spouse, a really good friend, a pastor, whoever. We are to make God's love real to people by loving them as he does. God's love for us in Christ is what breaks open the cycle of sin and despair so that we experience this instead of just the endless circle. Ruth's love broke open the cycle of bitterness and brought hope to Naomi. When Ruth was trapped, Boaz's love broke through and created the possibility of resurrection, and so we love one another. You see? And so I gotta, I gotta be done. Yeah, it's time for me to be done, but... Um, two gospel truths uh, that I think just as I, I don't know why I couldn't get away from this as I just meditated again on the big picture of this book as we finish here at the end. And the two gospel truths that I would leave with you that I hope linger over your life for this summer that you pray linger over mine as well is the first is um, gospel truth number one is that God is not undecided about you. Our confession of faith describes him as being without parts or passions and it means that he is not divided and he is not fickle. Now, if you ask me what I want, I can hardly ever give an answer because it feels like my heart is always being pulled in a dozen different directions. Anybody else? It's hard for me to answer that question. 
and that makes me fickle. I run hot and cold. I can be affectionate one minute and really not the next. It depends on my mood. I, I can be really moody, and my moodiness affects the way I treat people. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it's like to be married to me or to be one of my kids? I mean, literally, they pray, They never know. what. The, I think they probably have a family meeting at the beginning of the day and ask how dad's doing so they know what's going on for that day. Like, which dad do we get today? Is it the nice one or the not nice one? Because I can be so hit or miss. You know what that's like, don't you? Can I tell you? God is none of that. He's none of that. The confession means that he is settled in his love for us. He does not run hot and cold. He is not given to moodiness. Praise the Lord, right? Because if he was, bad things. He doesn't have a bad day and decide on a whim to wipe out half the planet with plague, okay? He, you know, that doesn't happen to him. He, he is constant and true. And if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ... God is not undecided about you. He's not waiting to see how you do tomorrow. Your circumstances might fluctuate, but his love for you does not. So no matter where you are, if you're down at the very bottom of that curve, if you're down at the very bottom in the deep, dark valley, he is the good shepherd that has led you there, and his goodness and mercy will follow you through that valley up into the peaks again. All of the verbs that describe salvation in the scripture, not all of them, but, but a lot of the time when the Bible's talking about salvation, it, talks, it uses the aorist tense verb. That's nerdy stuff, I know, but it really is important. Because the aorist t- tense refers to something that happened in the past that continues to have effect in the present and all the way to the future. God has already in the past made up his mind about you. Ephesians says that from before the foundations of the world, he loved you. And if he is not undecided about you, then here's the second truth. Then your future is not in jeopardy. If you're in Christ, you're tied to him. Wherever he goes, you go with him. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that we are buried with him. If we're, if we're in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, you're buried with him in baptism. That we've been united to him in a death like his. And so if you're a Christian, what that means is, is that Jesus is constantly pulling you into his kind of work. <laughs> He's going to pull you down into your own nothingness in service to others because he loves you and he wants you to be where he is. But if you're united to him in his death, you're also united to him in his resurrection. Jesus Christ has been raised and he has already, aorist tense, pulled you up into resurrection too. Something that has already happened. Your future is is not in jeopardy. His resurrection makes yours a stone-cold lock every time. Not just at the end of your life, hear me, but every time you choose to love like Ruth loved Naomi, like Boaz loved Ruth. The book of Ruth was written to people who were on the brink. They had endured long years of tragedy, exile. They had just begun, begun, just in these moments, begun to experience the slightest hope that things might be different. And of course, when you're there, the tendency is to shut your heart down to make sure you're not disappointed if things don't work out the way you hope they they do and Ruth's story is there to say here's what Ruth is saying to us don't do that don't stop dreaming don't stop loving when people get hard because you just don't think you're getting anywhere don't don't give up on yourself when you're battling the same sin you were battling 15 years ago and it doesn't feel like you've made any progress don't don't be full of dread about the future Because if you stop hoping, you'll stop loving. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 says, it's this verse that every, you know, every, it's the life verse of, of two-thirds of Christianity. That God has plans. And, by, and the reason I say it snarky like that is because it was written to people who had been in exile for 70 years. So if you want to make it your life verse, just know you're going to have to go 70 years of exile before you can really say it in context. Just FYI. Okay? 70 years of exile and heartbreak. And the prophet Jeremiah dares to come to these people who have had their homes burned, who've had their wives killed and raped, their children murdered and sent away to a foreign land and says to those people, it may not feel like it, but God has plans to give you hope and a future. God has plans. Even if you're down at the bottom there, and they were, the people to which this was written, God has plans to give you hope and a future. That's the key to faithfulness in the small stuff when the big stuff seems to be coming unhinged. Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. And you're alive too with him. And he's coming again. And when he comes, listen, when he comes, every little mini resurrection will become a big one. When he comes again, I, you didn't think I was going to go on sabbatical and not leave you with a C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> when he comes, wrong will be right. When Aslan comes in sight, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. That's our hope. Don't stop hoping, because when you stop hoping, you'll stop loving. Let's pray. Father, in these last few moments we have to be together this morning, do fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts and our minds and our imaginations with, with the promise of what you've come to do for us and strengthen us with that, that because you live, we can face tomorrow. Because you live, all fear is gone. Uh, because you live, everything is different. We're not trapped in the cycle of, of, uh, of sin and despair, but the, the lid has been popped off the top of that. And now, even in uh, the cycling down into sorrow and pain, there is the hope. Uh, that we will be carried forward to resurrection. It is what we look for and look forward to. It is the, the essence of our faith, and yet we confess how unbelieving we can be, particularly when we're in pain. And so for those who are struggling this morning, would you fill them with your hope so that you can empower them for the work of love that you've called for us to show to one another, and that should spill out from us to the city that you've called us to. That's what we desire, but we need this work uh, to be done by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. So come now as we sing together. Do that, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the promise of this benediction, <clears throat> let's get this right. Uh, the promise of this benediction is what is the perspective through which you view uh, whatever reality it is that you're having to live through at the moment. It is not your circumstances uh, that you allow to be the lens through which you view the validity or the truth or the power of these words. It is the other way around. Uh, because he lives, uh, there's life for us as well, and that's the promise of this benediction. So receive these words and go, even if it means going down into a valley of death, valley of deep darkness, know that your good shepherd goes with you, that his goodness and his mercy follow you all the days of your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.